Great to see you guys. If you want to open up to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Story is told of one day a man going into a pet shop to buy a parrot, as everybody does. The assistant takes the man to the parrot section and asks him to choose one. The man asks, how much is the yellow one? And the assistant replies that it costs 2,000 bucks. Man is shocked, and so he asks the assistant, why so expensive? He says, this parrot is a very special one. He can type really fast. What about the green one, the man asks? Well, that one is $5,000 because he can type, answer incoming phone calls, and take notes. Well, so the man says, what about the red ones? And the assistant says, 10,000 bucks. Curious, the man asks, why is this one so expensive? And he says, I don't know, but the other two call him boss. (laughs) And you know, we're wrapping up this whole family series looking at the boss. And your boss may seem like nothing more than a parrot that the other two answer to. But um, today we're actually looking at what the gospel has to say to the role and the responsibility and the demeanor of of the employer. And so uh, today I have to apologize um, because I actually have to try really hard not to smile, okay? Um, Which shouldn't be too hard for me, I'm kind of a grump, but I had um, a cyst taken out of my lip. Surgery actually is what it was. And I didn't get a single meal ministry offer, but... um, (laughs) But I, did, I had stitches, and I had a uh, Hitler mustache bandage uh, for the last three days right here. And I decided to take it off before I preached to you guys today. So if I smile too hard, my guts might come out my lip, and that might not be good. So I'm having to like think of other things to do, like, ha, <laughs> ha, or something, to let the joy out. So it's going to get weird today. It really is. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9 says, And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. We talked about last week how uh, there was a word to the slaves, to the servants, and we looked at the history behind the Greece culture and the Romans culture and, and that over 60 million people at one time were uh, considered slaves. It was really a part of societal norm. Uh, everything from the employers, uh, rather employees, to the doctors, to the educators, uh, these people were considered slaves. Um, and, and that kind of ran a whole gamut of um, oppression. You know, some were, were nearly free men and women. Others were abused. And uh, as much as we think of slavery in our um, you know, United States history with the, the beatings and the whippings and the oppression, um, that certainly was the case as well for uh, anyone who was a Roman or a Grecian slave or servant. Uh, and so we've got Paul who's writing to this culture of slavery and slave owners. 
And he really goes in, as we looked last week, at undermining slavery, not through some sort of external revolt, but through uh, an undermining change through the hearts of men and women in daily gospel-centered living. And so you're going to want to listen to last week's teaching, but let's be honest, you're going to want to go and you're going to look at the last 20 weeks uh, because we have, we're finishing up a gospel family series today that for 20 weeks has brought the gospel in what, what God has done through his son Jesus Christ at redeeming sinners through the death of, of the son uh, and how that shapes and transforms uh, wives and their relationships with their husbands, husbands and the way that they love their wives, children and how they're obedient to their parents, parents and how they're, how they're not uh, provoking to their children, but rather training and discipling their kids, uh, servants and how they obey their masters, not with eye service or lip service as men pleasers, but with good will and sincerity of heart to their masters. And so we, we've tried to look at this not through just some external moralistic application but through what Jesus has come to do in the hearts of sinners in transforming us uh, to live um, transformed lives of um, holiness and righteousness and justice and in really living out the roles that God has created us for. And so we get to a bit of a difficult text um, to masters, to masters and the way that they would treat their slaves. Uh, we look at this word master, which means lord or someone who's an owner, someone who's a ruler, someone who should be called sir. Uh, now, masters in the Greek isn't so strong of a word as owner, but there's some serious authority implied here. John Stott says, although the duties of Christian slaves are spelled out in some detail, Christian slave owners are given only three principles, all of which, however, have far-reaching implications against the background of the middle of the first century AD. So I'm going to give you three key words as we go through the teaching today in just a few minutes um, that really, this, these are the, the, the instructions to the masters, and it's just crazy how the Lord had just this sovereign plan to undermine this slavery uh, principle, uh, although now we will apply it to our workforce relationships. Um, let me read a little bit here from uh, an introduction from Stott on this subject, if you'll bear with me. He said, um, although the, or rather he moves on to say, nevertheless, we Christians cannot escape a sense of shame that slavery and the slave trade were tolerated for so long, especially later in the European colonies. Both should have been abolished centuries before they were, and the best Christian minds recognized this. He goes on to quote John Calvin, for example, who in the middle of the 16th century attributed slavery to original sin. And Calvin said, Slavery was a thing totally against all the order of nature. That human beings fashioned after the image of God should ever be put to such reproach. And at the core of uh, a theological debate against slavery 
is the doctrine of the Imago Dei, or the doctrine of the image of God, that God created man and woman in his image. And as you study that doctrine, the fact that God risked his own glory even to create something uh, in his image, to be like him, to represent him in this world, the fact that it was a man and a woman um, is an incredible thing. It gives such incredible dignity and value to human beings, whether red, rather, whether, whether yellow, black, or white. And Stott, to finish up, said, while we cannot defend the indolence or cowardice of two further Christian centuries, which saw this social evil but failed to eradicate it, we can at the same time, and listen to this, rejoice that the gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine this institution. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed it. This brings us back to Paul's Ephesian letter and to the transformed slave-master relationship which he described. Three aspects of it may be mentioned. And so uh, I love that phrase that the gospel lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed slavery. Wherever the gospel goes, it brings dignity to women. It brings uh, freedom to the slave. It's a wonderful, wonderful, powerful truth that transforms societal norms. And I love thinking of that and just reading articles in the past that speak of, you know, the, the justice of God and how he raises up in his sovereignty um, men and women and governments to, to lead righteousness and to crush tyranny and to crush uh, evil men and, and other evil governments. And so when we think of even uh, just kind of like this spark that lit the fuse in our American revolution to crush the tyranny of uh, Britain, or whether we look at the, you know, that, that time in our American history where that fuse was lit by the gospel and led to the explosion that even created the Civil War, bringing out about liberation, and, and then, uh, you know, about a century later, the Civil Rights Movement. Those are things that we can rejoice in that have their root and their grounding in the gospel of Jesus Christ that desires all men to be free uh, free in Christ Jesus. And so uh, the first phrase out of three that we look at uh, today uh, would be brotherhood, or this word and this, this idea of brotherhood. Now, understanding Christian brotherhood would have sounded strange to anyone but the Christian's ears when we're speaking of the slave-master relationship. Uh, reading of the philosopher Seneca, which is fun today because I'm heading to Seneca immediately after church to go minister there today. Um, but Seneca taught the universal brotherhood of mankind, although he didn't apply it necessarily to uh, slave owner relationships. He would call them comrades or he'd call them friends. But even Seneca, early philosopher, would not have used the phrase brothers which is what the New Testament uses to describe um, that relationship uh, between even a slave or the master. 
Uh, this is something that's gospel innovation, and it's a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Uh, in the New Testament, you look at Philemon, which only has one chapter. Uh, it's an incredible book written to Onesimus, uh, who was a slave owner and had one of his, uh, my, my, I'm cracking up there, it's written to Philemon uh, about Onesimus, uh, Philemon being a slave owner who owned Onesimus. And uh, Paul's uh, writing because Onesimus had escaped, had gone off and, and been part of the, the ministry. And now Paul is writing to beseech Philemon to receive Onesimus back and to um, count him no longer. Verse 16 says uh, he's no longer to be counted as a slave, but as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh you got to apply that to this whole slave-master relationship, but also in the Lord. What's interesting when you think of this is, is, is this Philemon Onesimus case that sometimes a slave would get born again, be part of a local church, and be raised up to be part of even church government, to be a leader, to be a deacon, to be an elder, and then the master would end up getting saved and start going to that local church. So you've got this really unique dynamic where outside of the, the church setting, the role is master-slave, and inside the church setting, the role is kind of not reversed to that extreme, but you've got a slave who now has a role of leadership. New Testament uses the word ruling. And then you have the master who's now, you know, it's kind of the, oh, the teacher or the student has become the master. You know, that's, if you're following me, that's what began happening in the church back in the first century. Now the masters are being taught and being discipled, sometimes even by the slave. And so we get to this instruction to even this new brother relationship that can happen within um, a slave-master relationship. And so if you look at verse 9, it says, Masters, do the same things to them. Do the same things to them. In the Greek, it's, I'm probably going to wreck it, but it's mutatis mutandis, or hakuna matata. No, not that one. Um, mutatis mutandis means show the same regard. And it speaks of showing the same regard to God's will and to your servant's well-being and your relationship to them. The same thing that they ought to be doing to you. When love is the foundation of our civil relationships, the duties of servants and to masters will both have duty, they'll both have respect, they'll bo both have love it's been said, as one in the same light attempers various colors. You know, the light shines, but it brings out the reds and the greens and the blues or whatever it is, you know, the, those rainbow colors. Uh, in the same way that there's one light, there's equality of worth and value in our being created in the image of God. And yet that same light and equality shoots out different colors, different roles, different responsibilities within relationships. We have equality of nature and faith, and that is superior to the distinctions of rank, Bengal says. He also goes on to say, Christianity makes all men brothers. And so you also to them, masters, 
also to them. Now, that's kind of a weird place to start this morning as we read the verse. Masters, do the same to them. That leaves you asking the question, do the same what, right? Do, do what? The same what? And so we just want to go back even just a little bit to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, just about four verses earlier, where the, the bondservants or the slaves were told to do something. And it said, bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So as we read this, think about what in the, in the order to slaves could be transferable to the role of the master, okay? So uh, be obedient. So that's not necessarily probably what he's talking about there. Masters, now you be obedient to your slaves. And okay. Um, but it goes on to say, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or he's free. And it goes on, masters do likewise. Okay, so just in Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, we can kind of pick out some application to masters as well. You might have noted, man, masters should, should rule with sincerity of heart as to Christ. Okay, so there should be the sincerity of heart. There should be um, uh, eagerness in heart. There should be this willingness to to glorify Christ in their mastery, going on to say, not as men pleasers, and I believe that could be transferable, that, that masters or employers or managers or foremen, that as you are out there working in the workforce as leaders, that you shouldn't have a, a fear of man, just pleasing men, but as it goes on to say, as servants of Christ, that could be applicable. Doing the will of God from the heart, so masters, foremans, managers, you should be working and leading your team with, um, with uh, hardiness, with eagerness, with, verse 7, goodwill. And we talked about how that's kind of a Christmas phrase that, you know, about one time a year you hear that goodwill a whole lot. Unless you like to shop at Goodwill, then it comes up all the time at your house. But um, goodwill, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And we kind of joked last week that if you want to spread some holiday cheer and some goodwill around the workplace, do your job well and lead your people well. And that will bring about a great festive environment during the holidays, right? And then, uh, of course, this, this promise in verse 8 that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. That's good application for leaders in the workplace, for masters, for business owners, for foremen at the job site. Likewise do to them. Likewise do to them. Matthew Henry said, be just to them. As you expect, they should be to you. Show the like goodwill and concern for them and be careful to approve yourselves to God. Henry goes on to say, observe, masters are under strict obligations 
to discharge their duty to their servants as servants are to be obedient and dutiful to them. Now, this should have a bit of a familiar ring to it because we're getting down really to what the sum of the law and the prophets is in regards to uh, civil relationships and relationship to mankind. Just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Really the golden rule. You want to be a good and successful employer, manager, and boss? Then do to your workers what you would desire to have done to you. You want obedient, hearty workers? Then, then man, you in turn should, should actually lead the way as a master in serving them as we understand in the gospel that the master of all didn't come to be served but to serve mark 10:45 and to give his life as a ransom for many that's kind of the youth group memory verse right now we're trying to train those 5th through 7th graders you know uh, that man selfishness has no place in the christian walk we need to learn from Jesus, who was the master of all, to, to lay down your life in service for one another, to lead with servant leadership. And even Peter would chime in in 1 Peter chapter 5 that our leadership as elders and as pastors in the local church ought to be leading by example. It ought to be servant Jesus-style leadership. James would tell us, if you really want to fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. And so oftentimes within the workforce, to get to the top of the ladder, you've got to step on everybody's head going up to the top. You've got to look out for number one. You've got to look out for me, myself, and I. You know, you've got to be shrewd. You've got to be playing the game, working the system. Certainly has to seem to be some eye service and some man-pleasing going on. And you work your way up to the top of the corporate ladder or to the top of the work, you know, uh, pyramid. And, and then as you get to the top, you rule with a rod of iron. People deal with you, you know. You can come in with whatever attitude you want, whatever demeanor you want. You can behave however you want, as we've been seeing, right, in the, in the recent, you know, allegations of sexual misconduct on the workforce. All of these men who, you know, they're at the top, right? So they just treat women however they want. They're crude and they're lewd and they advance upon them. Why? Because they're the rulers. And even the world is balking at that now. They're saying, no, rulers can't just treat people however they want, they can't just be a moral, man, there's got to be some sort of, of, of deferral. There's got to be some sort of humility. There's got to be some sort of, of um, you know, looking out for other people, even when you're at the top. And we certainly have that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The servant leader. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one with the name, that at that name, every knee will bow whether in heaven or earth or under the earth, 
Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Paul tells us that in Philippians, he also tells us, and so you likewise live like that king of kings. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, in humble-mindedness, esteem others as better than yourselves. And so you have this golden rule. You want your workforce to serve well and obey well, then man, you ought to also serve as a leader. If you want to receive respect, you show it. If you, if you hope to receive service, give it. Just applying the golden rule to the work environment. We have this instruction, giving up threatening there in verse 9. Giving up threatening. The language speaks of unfastening the threatening. Take it off. Don't wear the cloak around that just has, you know, tyranny written on the back. As a Christian, you're not to be a dictator. ESV says, stop your threatening. Just stop it. Now, think as a worker, have you ever had a boss that was just always threatening? Just kind of always putting out there, if you want to get this, or if you want to have that, or, or if you want to keep your job, or, you know, or maybe it went even more severe than that, and I imagine here in Prineville, kind of in the blue-collar, you know, uh, rugged jobs, you know, we'd often have some of those guys that just weren't afraid to say it like it is, a little bit of foul language every now and then. We got military guys in the room that, you know, I can only imagine, you know, some of the, the leadership that we've had that, man, there, there's some threatening going on in the way that our boss treats us. Now, as I look around the room, many men in this room have either their owners of their business or their leaders and foremans at the site. And, and the word is for you today. Stop your threatening. You've got that one employee that's just not doing their work. They're just, they're lazy on the job. They're loafing around, you know, and, and man, they just need a swift kick, you know? That's really what they need. And it'd just be well for us today to just remember, okay, threatening's out, <laughs> all right? Threatening's out. There's another method that we're called to in the New Testament. Henry says, remitting the evils with which you threaten them, remember that your servants are made of the same mold with yourselves. And therefore, be not tyrannical and imperious over them. They're made of the same stuff as you. You know, I'm sorry, but they didn't break the mold after they made you. <laughs> same mold, right? Uh, made in the image of God. And so you think of that. Think of image bearer of God. Think of, as Paul says in, uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, that we now no longer esteem men according to the flesh, but we see souls and we are ambassadors to those souls. So even our evangelism plays a role in the way that we lead these men and women of flesh in our work environment. Just as you go back a few verses and you have the duties of parents 
explained, parents were not to provoke their children to wrath. Neither are masters to threaten their slaves. And I know you kind of like that a little bit. You're like, yeah, you know what? On the workforce, they are kind of my slave. They're not your slave. Okay? It's a free country. Right? We dealt with that 150 years ago. Look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who's hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You know, this has a connotation of threatening that I'm not really going to pay you. So you got to dance a little bit. You got to work a little harder. Maybe you'll get paid, you know, at the end of this day if you really work. And, and that's just, that's, you know, Leviticus and the law says, you know what? Pay them when you're supposed to pay them. All right? Your wages shall not be with you all night until morning. When you look at Leviticus and you look at the law of slaves, and there's a lot to get into. You could look deeper into the whole slave system. Uh, we're not going to right now. But um, speaking of, of even the rulership over brethren and fellow Jews in Leviticus chapter 25, uh, there was to be kindness in that. And verse 43 says, you shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. All right. So think of your workplace. Think of your work environment. Think of just those people that just, man, they just need to work harder. They need to work smarter, you know. And it's, it's just, okay, but wisdom says don't rule over them with rigor. And just as the slave had the command to serve and obey as to the Lord, so does the master in Leviticus have the command to fear your God in how you rule. Even goes on to say at the end there in verse 46 of Leviticus 25, it repeats it. You shall not rule over one another with rigor with rigor and then deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 11 through 15 we're just going to look at verse 13 uh that idea of the of the bond servant we looked at it last week when you send him away free from you you shall not let him go away empty-handed you shall supply him liberally from your flock from your threshing floor from your wine press from what the lord your god has blessed you with you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. Last week, we looked at the slaves and how they were actually to serve with generosity. That's an inter interesting term, isn't it? That the worker would be generous in his work. And we looked at Jacob and how when he served his uncle Laban, Whenever a, a, a lamb or a ram or a goat would die, he would just incur that cost to him. He would take it on himself. We see that Jacob was an example of generosity in his labor to his uncle. In a way, he kind of knew that it would be taken out of his hide anyways, but he willingly and voluntarily took that cost to himself. Interesting idea, isn't it? That we as workers would, I'm going to serve with generosity. I'm going to go the extra mile you know what, whether I get the promotion, whether I get the raise, that doesn't matter. I'm going above and beyond because I adorn the gospel when I do that. But here we also see, even in the law, that masters, you're not to rule your servants with rigor, but even when it's time for them to go, 
Be generous with them. Adorn the gospel in giving them good gifts. Why? Because you will remember that one time, one time, you were a slave. Remember that time when you were the one who was on the bottom? When you were the one who was working for somebody else? The way you were treated? Apply that to the spiritual sense. One time, you were a slave in Egypt. One time, you were a slave in bondage to sin and death. But do you remember when your master brought freedom and grace abundantly to you? Bring that application to your job, to your area of leadership. Deuteronomy 24, again in the law, verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. Whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who's in your land or within your gates. And so, you know, man, as we hire um, immigrants even in this land to work for us, and it's so important that we don't oppress someone and they're in desperate need, so we're going to make them work for less. We're going to, you know, hold back overtime from them. We're going to make them work the extra hours and just give no grace and no abundant grace to them um, or even really what we owe them. And the law would say, man, don't oppress those guys. Don't take every, all the life. You suck it out of them because you know they're needy. They've got to have this job. And so you know what? They're gonna, I'm going to just drain every little bit out of them. And that verse goes on to say, Each day you shall give him his wages and don't let the sun go down on it. For he's poor and he set his heart on it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. It's been said, if your boss is getting you down, look at him through the prongs of a fork and imagine him in jail. (laughs) I like that. Even Job cries out in Job 31, 13, man, if I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, man, What then shall I do when God rises up, when he punishes? How shall I answer him? Oh, man, Lord, show us. If there is a cause of one of our servants that we've just brushed off, and when we see him in the break room and they're holding that fork up, (laughs) you're like, I wonder if I've wronged that guy a little bit. Be good to ask the Lord. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, nearly a parallel passage. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair. That leads us to the second word, justice. Paul brings this concept of what is proper and right. What is justice? Again, this was an unseen, unheard word and phrase to this culture of this day. Justice for the slave? Justice for the slave from the master, although Roman law was actually becoming more and more humane at this time, uh, slaves were very known to just be property to their masters. The masters had um, absolute power over them, but there was some cultural shift beginning to happen, and there was to be justice for the servants. The New Testament calls this forth. Look at James chapter 5. Verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich 
Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You've lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you've fattened your heart as in the day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the just. He does not resist you. And so we see in, in, in our verse today, verse 9, as we see in James, there will be justice. There will be justice for the slave owner, for the master, who's not right and righteous to his workers, who's holding back the wages, who's condemning and even murdering the just. And there will be righteous judgment uh, in the end, as we'll see later on in our verse here. Um, but back in verse 9... Ephesians chapter 6, knowing that you, rather, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. So even the master has a master. And when you look in the Gospels, last week we referenced it, the Roman centurion who came to Jesus that his servant might be healed, he says, you don't have to come, Jesus, you don't have to come. I know how this authority thing works. In fact, I myself am a man of authority, and I say to this servant, go, and he goes. I say to this servant, come, and he comes, and, and I, but I'm also under authority. I'm a centurion. I'm buff. I've got the six-pack of armor on. I know how to wield one of these sword thingies. You know, I'm a good man, and I'm a leader, but you know what? I even have leaders over me. You know what? Even the best men are men at best, and even the most leading leader, he's got someone leading over him. And in the case of even the most supreme, even they have a master, a heavenly master. The original Greek translates this, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. The New Revised Standard says, masters do the same to them, stop threatening them, for you know, you know that both of you have the same master in heaven. Both of you have the same master master you have a master to obey and that makes this your duty slaves and you and they are both fellow servants in respect to christ and so that brings us to the third word of equality that ephesians and colossians speak towards slaves and masters that there's equality of worth and of value I think it was Fawcett, Jameson Fawcett and Brown said, this forcibly brings about the equality of slaves and masters in the sight of God, that we both have a master. Again, Seneca said, whatever an inferior dreads from you, this a superior master threatens yourself with. Every authority here is under a higher above. So think about you leaders out there, you workforce leaders, you foremen, you masters, you know, you guys that like to be called sir and boss out on the job. Just remember, whatever your worker bees, 
fear from you, you're threatened from above as well. You have a master in heaven who will judge. And in his judging, there's equality. The final phrase of our verse today, verse 9, as there is no partiality with him. No partiality with him. Let me just read what Stott has to say on this matter. Of course, nobody could imagine that in culture or in law, masters and slaves were equal. Quite patently, they were not, since one owned the other. Nevertheless, they were equal before God, because they had the same Lord and the same judge who showed no partiality between them. Roman law was still in certain respects discriminatory, but heavenly justice was not. Paul reminded both slaves and masters of this fact, for this was the theological foundation in which he built his doctrine of equality. Slaves were to give their earthly masters good service and good will as if to their heavenly master, knowing that he would honor and reward them. Masters, where we're at today, were not to threaten, but to respect their slaves, knowing that they had the same master in heaven. Thus, it was their shared knowledge of the lordship and the judgment of Jesus Christ, which made them equal. If they remembered that Jesus was their common Lord now, and would one day be their common judge, their whole attitude toward one another would change. And so as you go, it's tomorrow's Monday, right? If you're like Garfield, you hate Mondays, right? Just make me a lasagna. I'm going to hide under my blanket, okay? Uh, tomorrow's coming. The first day of the week. What a wonderful day to apply the change and to just rely on the Spirit of God to help you to, to apply the golden rule to your work situation. And as you go into it, you remember, you know what? Whether this person's a Christian or not, man, one day his knee will bow. The Lord desires to be his Lord. Some of them are Christians, and we have the common Lord. And one day we'll all have the same judge. I might, have, I might have a different role than this man or woman, but there is a level of equality there. And so, Lord, help me to treat this person with that equality. Whether you're reading Galatians or Colossians or Ephesians, in Colossians 3.11, for instance, we see there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. The gospel has these wonderful phrases coming out in the New Testament. You know, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. You know, whether you're a rich man living in a palace or whether you are a barbarian. You know, you don't shave and you don't wear deodorant and you don't brush your teeth. Hey, there's dudes out there in the churches that are those guys. There's some dudes in here in this church that are those guys. We'll be talking to you later about that. But little holiday aroma going on there. But anywho, Christ is all and in all. That's the paramount thing. He will not, in judging, acquit you because you are a master or condemn you because you are a servant. 
There's no partiality in our just God's judgment. Wrapping up here, Henry said, A rich and wealthy and a dignified master, if he be unjust, imperious, and abusive, is not a jot the nearer to being accepted of God for his riches, his wealth, and his honor. He will call masters and servants to an impartial account for their conduct to one another and will neither spare the former because they are more advanced nor be severe towards the latter because they are inferior and mean in the world. Wrapping up with the book, uh, with the translation, the Phillips translation, as uh, the worship team comes on up. Check out what this uh, 1940s translation says for us. And as for you employers, be as conscientious and responsible towards those who serve you as you expect them to be towards you. Could you not step on the plug? Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Angela, she already gets my sense of humor. She's not worried about it goes on to say, neither misusing the power over others that has been put in your hands, nor forgetting that you are responsible yourselves to a heavenly employer who makes no distinction between master and man. Why don't we set our things aside this morning? As you read the book of Ephesians, This word to masters, although it would be beneficial for the godless to hear, the context is to those masters who are born again, those masters that understand their secure and beautiful election by a sovereign God, his forethought in predestining them, his great actions of coming to redeem them and rescue them out of darkness and being slaves to wickedness. The masters that he's writing to here in Ephesians chapter 6, they, they've, they're, they've heard from Paul that, in, I think it's chapter 3 of Ephesians, that you know, he has taken Jew and Gentile and, he, and God has made one new people out of them. Believers, the master, he's heard that as he's read this letter from Paul there in Ephesus. Wow, God is, I'm not a Jew anymore. I'm not a Gentile anymore. I'm a new person. I'm a Christian. God has made a new person out of me. This master, he's, he's also heard that, that you know, I'm, I'm, to, I'm to be a productive part of the body of Christ. You know, God has put in my life pastors and teachers and, and other people with spiritual gifts. And he, he's equipping me for the work of the ministry, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm, I'm to do my share as a part of the body of Christ. He's, he's heard chapter 5 verse 1 about being imitators of God as dear children. Man, as someone who's been, just had the blessings of heaven poured out upon me, has, 
had the sovereign God elect and predestined me. He's, he's made me, he, he, I'm not a Gentile anymore. I'm not a barbarian, barbarian anymore. I'm a, I'm a Christian now, and I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm useful for the work of the ministry. Now I imitate God as dear children. This master that's been written to today, he's someone who's told, don't be drunk with wine when you're trying to do your job well. That's not going to help. But be filled with the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. Sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, sing into the Lord with melody in your heart. Be thankful as you're filled with the Spirit. You know, some of those masters, they were... You know, in the, in the context, maybe not, but in our context, yes, that men and women who were either husbands or wives. And they were called as husbands and wives to be filled with the Spirit, submit to your husbands, and love your wives with a spare-nothing-unto-death sacrificial love. Those masters, many of them fathers, parents, don't provoke your children to wrath. But bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Those masters heard the call to the servants. You obey your master. Not with lip service, not with eye service. But with goodwill and heartiness and eagerness in your work. You do it all to the Lord, to the Lord. And those masters then heard their call today. A tall order of respect and love and servitude. The heart of glorifying God in their leadership. <clears throat> and so as we close today, I want to have everyone who, in your workplace, you're seen as a leader. On your work for some capacity. You might be a business owner. If you are a uh, manager. If you are a foreman, if you even lead in just, you know, a section of a company and you have people under you, you have people you are responsible for, I would just ask you today that if you want the power of God upon you today to do this task well, I would just ask you to stand where you're at. I want to pray for you kind of closing out this whole gospel family series. And we don't want to leave behind these employers that, you know, you do your job well and you will adorn the gospel. You will protect doctrine. You will bring God glory. Just as the bosses, the foremans, the managers stand, just reach our hands out to them. You know, these are leaders in our community. These are people that as they go out there, there are people that they'll see Jesus through their leadership. Lord, we just lift our hands out today to these leaders in our church. In the schools, in on the farms, on the ranches, in the branches. And Lord, we just hear you today. 
We hear you today that you want us to be more than bosses and more than bossy. You want us to represent you well. Lord, you want that when people see us as leaders, they see you, Jesus. Pray for the business owners who even in this season, in the Christmas season, they've got tasks of considering their employees and blessing their employees and gifting and being gracious with their employees. And I pray that that you would just move in their hearts such a, a good, right level of generosity that as their employees receive, there would just be an ornament of Jesus there. We pray for the, the foremans and those that they answer to somebody and they've got to get a job done and there's pressure because they're going to answer to their boss and, and they just tend to be short and sharp and kind of threaten a little or give a cold shoulder or just there's just not kindness anymore. There's not joy anymore. There's, there's just, they're kind of rough to work for maybe. We just pray today for these bosses, for these foremans in this room, Lord, as they just stand and say, fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit, God. I want to be the saved boss that's spoken to in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. I, I even am just reflecting today upon the gospel and, and receiving by faith just your gracious provision of the Holy Spirit that I can rule my people well. And Lord, we all look to that day, whether we are the slave in the room or the master in the room, we look to that day when we will stand before your throne and we'll receive the judgment from you. And we're so thankful that you took our punishment upon us at the cross and you pour out upon us grace that was won for us at the cross. Let's all stand together. As we go into Monday, Lord, we just look for great transformation in our civil relationships. Thank you for this series, how you've transformed husband and wife relationships. You've transformed parent-to-children relationships and children-to-parent. Even this week, you've just been transforming just how we do our jobs well and how we treat those that are kind of part of the work family. We want you to be glorified, God. We want people to be saved through our just living it out well. We want doctrine to be protected. We want to be examples. We pray that you would just use this series to heal our families, Lord. Any bit of us that is just still resistant to transformation, Lord, would you just chisel that away, the hardness of our heart, and bring brokenness, bring healing, grant repentance, that you'd be praised. In Jesus' name, let's sing this last song together.
what a master, oh, what a savior. You are Lord of all. You are our Lord here in this room, whether we're employees or employers, Lord, we all have the same master. Lord, let us go into this work week and even this living life 
just with the refreshed perspective of the equality of value on just the people around us. Though there's distinction in role and in function, we're made in the image of God, Lord. And may we see souls as we look at people. May we be ambassadors to those souls. When we live life in our families and there's conflict and there's annoyances and grievous things, Lord, let, Lord, let us just see those as ministry opportunities before us with these people made in your image. Just do a work in our church, God, by your spirit today. Let us be conformed to the words of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name.